Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining us today. Gold Royalty went public two years ago with 18 royalties, and now you have over 200, eight of which are producing. But I want to focus on three key assets, which will be driving growth in the near term. And I want to start with Canadian Malartic, which is Canada's largest gold producer. The asset which you have the royalty on is the Odyssey mine, which is the underground mine. Can you provide an overview of this asset, where it is in terms of its production profile and what it will mean to gold royalty when in full production? Well, there is a couple of unique aspects to that, very, very positive uh, uh, potential for that asset in that obviously Igneco is now consolidated ownership and there are going to be some synergies realized by doing that with the rest of the assets along that district that I know extremely well. I spent 12 years of my career at Igneco Eagle as we were building that district out, including Laurent, Goldex, Lapa and the like. So I think that's encouraging and they're likely to amplify their exploration efforts. So that'll help realize the geological potential of depth, particularly as they gain access for production. As they put that underground infrastructure in for production, they're also going to get better setups for exploration drilling. I have every confidence that that resource will balloon over time, even though it is substantial and supports 20 plus years of reserve life ahead of it. I think it has potential to grow for the foreseeable future. And you're right, we have uh, an NSR, 3% NSR over more than half of the underground resource at Odyssey. We have a limited uh, royalty as well in the open pit. We're actually generating revenue today from Canadian Malartic, but we have substantially better coverage on the Odyssey underground. But the other aspect uh, of that deposit, and, and I'm sure you're going to pop up a slide later on that shows our royalty coverage along the contiguous properties around Odyssey and Canadian Malartic in particular, is they're going to have a lot of spare capacity in the mill. Uh, they're currently milling 60,000 tons a day from the open pit. But as they go underground exclusively over the next couple of years, they're going to go down to about 18,000 tons a day. That's over 40,000 tons per day of spare capacity in that mill. So it's become an economic imperative for Igneco to look for satellite deposits along contiguous land positions there, upon which we have substantial royalty coverage. So we're quite confident that over time, as they ramp up their exploration efforts, to start to look for more sources of ore for that mill, we're going to get better royalty coverage over time. And when in full production, what will be the annual production at Odyssey? So it's going to be, uh, well, it's about a half a million ounces now at Canadian Malartic. It'll actually be a half a million ounces when it gets the full ramp up of the underground because it's substantially higher grade, even though it's much lower tonnage. But our royalty coverage is substantially higher. As I said, at least half of the deposit or half of the production will be uh, subject to our 3% NSR. So you're going to see a significant wrap up in our cash flows over the coming years as Odyssey comes on. You pointed to some of our other cornerstone assets, but those are driving 60% compounded annual growth in our revenue across our entire portfolio right through to the end of the decade, driven by Odyssey, driven by Cote, and driven by REN, which is the underground extension of, uh, of uh, the uh, Nevada Gold Mines uh, Gold Strike deposit. And David, you just mentioned Cote. I want to touch on this one now. That is the um, IM Gold Mine, which was located in Ontario. This mine has been plagued with many issues, but when in production, it will become Canada's second largest gold producer. Can you just give us an update on what's happening at Cote, and including when it will go into production? And when it does, what will that mean to gold royalty? Sure. Uh, well, it's 80% constructed as per the disclosure that IM Gold just put out with their recent quarterly results. So they're well advanced. They've done an exceptional job of recapitalizing the balance sheet to deal with what was astronomical cost overruns. You know, they've been plagued by inflation that really uh, the whole mining sector has been plagued by. I think that's why 
valuations are so depressed these days in the mining space, in spite of the fact that gold is near all-time nominal highs at $2,000 an ounce. Uh, but that's the beauty of the royalty model, is we were completely insulated from that. Our exposure is entirely top line. We have a royalty on the high speed portion of the open pit, zone five, that be mined early on in the mine life. Our payback is very, very rapid on our $16 million investment on the acquisition of that royalty from a third-party prospector. Your third asset, which will provide significant cash flow when in production, is the REN project, which is the underground extension at the Gold Strike Mine in Nevada. What stage in is this project in, and when will it start contributing to cash flow? Yeah, so REN has already published uh, an inaugural resource of Barracas as operator of nearly 2 million ounces at over 7 gram a ton material. So over seven times the grade they're mining from the open pit, uh, easily accessible from existing infrastructure. And of course, close to all of that surface infrastructure, the processing facilities that have been built out over many decades of operation at Cold Strike. Given the grade uh, being so high relative to what they're mining from the open pit, uh, Barrick has said that they're likely to prioritize this into the mine plan quite shortly. And also they see three to five million ounces of potential there at that deposit. And they're looking at a, a, a production profile from the underground of about 150 to 200,000 ounces per year. And we have substantial, we have entire royalty, exclusive royalty coverage on that deposit through both an NPI and an NSR. David, one of the features which makes gold royalty unique is that you have a royalty generator model, and this is where the REN royalty came from. Can you just expand on this model and how it works and how it benefits gold royalty? Sure. You know, in the course of acquiring uh, Golden Valley, Abitibi, and Ely Gold over the course of 2021, we also curated some very capable people. Uh, we kept all of the principals from those companies on board. In, in the case of Ely, Jerry Boffman and Trey Wasser, the co-founders of Ely, continue to stay with the company. Trey is on the advisory board. Jerry runs our business in the U.S., in Reno, Nevada. And Jerry, uh, many people know in the mining business, has been a prospector in Nevada for over 35 years. And he stakes exploration claims around existing mines, deposits, and then he waits for the neighbors to knock on the door. And then he farms the properties out and takes a royalty and option payments back and work commitments back. Similarly, Glenn Mullen, the founder of uh, Golden Valley and Abitibi Royalties, stayed on our board, and he runs a small uh, small part of our business in Valdor, uh, Quebec, doing exactly the same thing that Jerry does, and, uh, and coincidentally has a similar experience level to Jerry, over 35 years of prospecting in Quebec and Ontario. So both Glenn and Jerry bring an element to our, uh, our business model that didn't exist prior to the acquisition of those companies. It complements our capital markets expertise, our M&A expertise on our board of management, and our mind-building expertise with good old-fashioned prospecting, where, again, they stake exploration claims and farm the properties out and take royalties back. We typically uh, generate about two to three royalties per quarter doing just that. And it costs us nothing other than the sweat equity of Jerry and Trey and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Glenn, uh, effectively doing that work on the ground they're collecting a salary anyways. They're keeping their ear to the ground. That gives us access to opportunities that perhaps some of our competitors aren't aware of because we have that kind of human resource, human footprint on the ground, but also it generates royalties very, very cheaply, uh, effectively just the cost of their, their, their efforts. And as you can imagine, we don't need a lot of those to hit to generate infinite rates of return because the cost of entry is effectively zero. So you mentioned that you're doing two to three royalties a quarter. 
under this method. How many have you done in total? About 60 so far. So out of the 222 royalties we have in the portfolio, 60 were generated organically uh, through that model, either within Gold Royalty or in our predecessor companies, Golden Valley, Ely, and Abitibi royalties. So they were generated very, very cheaply, very cost-effectively, and it introduced all sorts of optionality into our portfolio. And the great thing about our royalty model and anything in our royalty portfolio is we own them, we own them outright. They don't have any capital calls. Uh, they're perpetual assets, uh, infinite optionality. We can just be patient and wait for our operating partners to deliver on, on, on the, the potential of those deposits. David, we spent some time talking about your three cornerstone assets, Malartic, Cote, and Ren. And I'm just wondering, you have a very large portfolio, but is there another Explore Co or development project in there that you think holds a lot of promise? Well, there's, there's at least a couple. Um, and you know, ones that we like to point out is we're really encouraged to see Orla take over Gold Standard Ventures. We have a royalty on Railroad Pinion. And it looks like Orla is going to fast track that into development in fairly short order. And they certainly have the capital uh, c- capital available and the technical expertise given their success with Camino Rojo in Mexico. So very, very confident that that's now landed in the hands of a very capable operator. Similarly, uh, Walbridge owns the Fenelon project uh, along the Detour District on the Quebec side of the border, really just a few short kilometers away from the existing Detour complex that Ignico Eagle owns. And Walbridge now um, has is 10% owned by Ignico Eagle, but also has an executive chairman in Tony McCush, the former CEO of Ignico Eagle. And you, I think we've seen Tony's track record over the last several vehicles he's run. He gets them to a point where it becomes very attractive and compelling for an existing operator to tuck in. And so I have every confidence that as he delivers on that four and a half million ounce PEA study over the course of the next month or so, he's really teeing this up to be wrapped into a much larger operator with a bigger balance sheet and the technical capacity to bring it forward into production. But it's obvious given its proximity to the existing complex of detour that that's an obvious tuck in for Nico Eagle potentially in time. Again, a very large deposit, high grade in a district that's well built out, really brownfield in nature. Uh, we see a lot of potential there and we have an exclusive royalty on that property as well. David, I want to move on now and discuss your balance sheet. A large part of your strategy is growth through acquisition. What is your liquidity position right now and how will you fund acquisitions going forward? Well, we're very conservatively capitalized. We have virtually no debt on the balance sheet. We have a a line of credit of $35 million with Bank of Montreal and National Bank. We've drawn on less than $10 million of that. So I guess a market cap of $300 million, very, very little debt on the balance sheet. And that's by design. We want to be conservatively capitalized. We do pay a dividend. We have about a 2% yield to current share prices. And given the growth that we see in revenue and the fact that our G&A costs are extremely flat, stable, we, we spend about $6 million on G&A costs, really largely on public company costs, D&O insurance, listing costs, and the like. We only have eight employees, and we could run a business 10 times the size with the same human footprint. So as you can imagine, every incremental dollar of revenue falls right to the bottom line and increases our potential uh, to, to pay increasing dividends over time. So we have plenty of free cash. We actually tip into free cash flow next year. And that's remarkable for a company that's only two years old that we've got from startup, really a blank sheet of paper a little over two years ago to free cash flow within three years, paying a dividend 10 months after our IPO. So we, we've been able to demonstrate through the success of our IPO and through a success of our M&A strategy that we can access capital quite readily. And really we've built a company that's, um, 
uh, you know, that's scalable, uh, scalable in terms of the people we have, but also we've been careful to put in the building blocks for a sustainable business, include, including publishing our asset handbook last month, our ESG report. We're really setting ourselves up to be a sustainable business that can easily access capital from the largest institutions in the world, because we do tick all the boxes in terms of our expertise, our transparency of our reporting, our ESG practices, our, our capital allocation practices. We're quite transparent about all of those and returning capital to shareholders regularly. You raise a very good point about your business being scalable. And when Gold Royalty was IPO'd, it only had 18 royalties. Now you have over 200, many of which came from M&A. Will you continue to acquire smaller royalty companies if it makes sense to do so from a valuation point of view? Well, it's hard to predict. M&A is, uh, is a tricky art more than it is a science. And, and Ian Telfer, who's the chair of my advisory board, often says to me, deals are done by people, not by companies. And, and it really depends on the chemistry between the, the companies and the windows of opportunity that open and close to make M&A happen. But what I'd say, inevitably, what will happen is there will be continued consolidation of the royalty space. Since we came on the scene and we instigated the whole consolidation theme in the royalty sector, and by buying three companies in 2021, we've seen eight companies in total disappear from the royalty sector, including Mavericks and Nomad in the arms of, of other uh, peer companies as well. But there have been a number of other companies that have disappeared and been transacted upon. It's inevitable that the eight or 10 names that remain will probably end up consolidating to one or two mid-tier champions, because that's really what's absent in the sector right now, is there's two clear categories within the royalty sector. There's the category killers, the large caps, in Franco, Wheaton, and Royal Gold. And then there's everybody else that I would characterize as relatively small cap. It's, and certainly a Cisco and Triple Flag have been meaningful steps to trying to capture that mid-tier uh, uh, mantle, if you will. But there's still quite a bit of room to grow uh, to get to that 5 to $10 billion market cap range where you're institutionally relevant, you're big enough to be and liquid enough to be relevant institutions, but still small enough to grow because as good as those large cap companies are in Franco, Wheaton, and World, and they are tremendous companies, it's very hard to grow off of a base that large. And that's what the smaller cap and emerging mid-tier companies can offer investors is the potential to grow dramatically and capture a mid-tier uh, growth multiple, if you will, that hopefully will be superior to what the seniors are already getting in terms of their multiples to net asset value. David, before we wrap up, I want to get your views on M&A. You were the CEO of Gold Corp, which was acquired by Newmont in 2019. Newmont is in the process of acquiring Newcrest. Earlier this year, Ignico and Pan American acquired Yamana. Is M&A going to continue at this torrid pace? Inevitably. Um, and, you know, if you can't find it in the ground, you're going to have to buy it. And you know, we've seen reserves decline 40% from their peak in 2012. The, the industry simply has not reinvested in exploration of mine development. And that's been driven by, I think, principally by the fact that juniors have not had access to the capital markets consistently over a long period of time. It's almost been a nuclear winter really since about 2012. We've had periods and small, short windows where juniors have gone to the market, raised a bit of capital, but then it shut quickly. And so the lack of that investment by capital markets in exploration and the juniors, make no mistake about it, do all the heavy lifting on grassroots exploration. The seniors simply don't do that. They do brownfield exploration, but they don't do grassroots. Um, you know, the reserves are inevitably declining. And that downward trajectory is going to continue for the foreseeable future. So what are producers left to do but cannibalize themselves, right? If you're not finding to the ground, you're going to have to buy your competitors. And it's telling that 
you know, four short years after we engineered, Gary Goldberg and I engineered the Newmont Gold Corp merger, thinking that that set up the new Newmont for 6 million ounces of production for the next 20 years. They've had to go and do Newcrest because they couldn't sustain that 6 million ounces because the sector's shrinking. They're shrinking. Everybody's shrinking and they're going to have to eat each other up. But I would say there's a, 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 a tier within the producer space, I would say kind of orphaned mid-tiers. They're finding it difficult to grow and they're having to sell themselves. That's why Yamana disappeared recently. Uh, you know, I think Peter realized it was difficult for him to grow. He wasn't getting the kind of currency he needed to grow. And I think there's a number of other companies of that kind of scale that are kind of caught in between. Uh, they, they're not really big enough to attract capital and they're too small to really grow and have the currency to grow their business appreciably. I think they get taken out. I think the single asset producers or single asset companies get taken out just because of the existential necessity uh, of the seniors to replace their depleting reserves in production. So I do think eventually M&A will exhaust itself, but I still think there are quite a few names to be taken out in the space to create uh, companies of critical mass to attract that generalist capital back into the sector. Very interesting point. David, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from gold royalty in the coming months? Well, well, look, um, you know, we, we own our royalties are right. Uh, there'll be no drama. Um, you know, we just have to wait and harvest the returns from all of the investments we've made over the last several years since our IPO. Uh, we own those royalties outright. We have well-capitalized partners that are driving forward those principal assets that you and I were talking about earlier on. Uh, they're well advanced in their development. So really the 60% compounded annual growth in revenue is just a function of time. Uh, and we feel quite certainly quite certain that we'll be able to achieve that growth simply because our operating partners advance those projects so capably. They have the balance sheet to do so, and they have the technical capacity to do so as well. So we're very fortunate. We're in the best jurisdictions of the world with the best operators and some of the best assets. David, that was a great update and a great overview of Gold Royalty. I want to thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to a update in the future. Thanks very much, Jimmy. 